how beautiful heaven must be. Talk to my kids sometimes and to others around us to think about if this place is broken the way it is and there's still such beauty to be seen, what must it be like where the perfection is? Adam and Eve are the only ones in this whole history of the world that actually saw what good looked like, what perfection was, the only two witnesses to that. But we have an eye for it and a longing for it because Jesus has promised that he's going to take us where things are perfect. And we can return to what was there before what happened in our earlier lesson today from Genesis 3. As Eve's faith was shaken, as she gave in to the pressures of Satan, asking her some pointed questions about God's good intentions, whether or not he really had said some of the things he did, and tempted her through her eyes to desire something that would make her no more than God had revealed to her, and to have something that seemed to be forbidden in some way, and the desire to eat from something that she wasn't allowed to eat from. We all know those temptations well. We struggle with all of those in some way or another. Those are the three weapons that, that Satan has. But as God challenged Adam and Eve and said, what have you done? They decided to avoid an actual confession and blamed the one who was with them. Again, I think that sounds familiar. It's far too easy to say, well, it's not my fault. The, situ the situation called for this. The circumstance caused it. The person over there who cut me off in traffic, they're the reason I sinned. No, they're not. <laughs> it was me. I need to confess that. So they've blamed God, after all. God's the one who made the woman to be with the man. God's the one who made the serpent over whom man should have had dominion. And so they've put God at the bottom and really exalted the creature. That's exactly what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1. <laughs> They've worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. And we do that even when we're worshipping and serving our own comfort and our own selves as well. And God ends up being on the bottom. But it looks like God just accepted their excuses. Until we get to verse 14 and following. He did not accept their excuses. He just allowed them to continue talking for a bit. And then he gave his word. So starting at verse 14 and 15. Genesis 3, 14 and 15. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." It's interesting that God doesn't ask the serpent, what have you done? <laughs> Man and woman are distinct from the other parts of creation. God makes that separation very clear. God makes that distinction clear. He doesn't give the rest of creation an opportunity to defend itself. <laughs> Even this other created being. <laughs> In this case, he just says, look, here's, here's what's coming. <laughs> he just hands down the sentence. And so he says to the serpent, because you've done this, you are cursed more than the other created animals. And the curse is that on your belly you shall go. So here's a serpent that has in some way an exalted posture, either, as we mentioned before, maybe wings or feet or whatever, that is now going to be on its belly. That is a humiliating posture 
posture of humiliation. When you want to show that you are lower than somebody else, you bow before them. Certainly in the, in the Eastern mindset, the Hebrew and the Oriental mindset. And if you bow all the way to the ground, you're saying you're much more exalted than I am. The serpent has no choice now. But to, to demonstrate that God is exalted. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. It's a strange thing to think about eating dust. But if we recognize in the context, dust has to do with the flesh, has to do with what man is made out of. And I believe that's sort of the idea here is you've got this serpent that's not going to live off the life-giving green herb, but is going to live off of the death, perhaps, of others, off the flesh of others. I don't know for sure yet that this is a sanctioning of eating other life, but certainly decay is going to come in from this point forward. We're going to see that when God hands down the punishment and the sentence to Adam. And so this may be a foreshadowing of that, that the serpent, the, the whole uh, existence of living off the green herb is changing. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, God says. God does this. This is not just some sort of a consequence of this bad relationship, but God says, I'm going to make it so that you will be mortal enemies. You will always be enemies, specifically because there's going to be enmity between your seed and her seed. There's an interesting thing that the translators do here. My version has the second seed, her seed with a capital S. I believe they did that very intentionally because of Galatians and other places that mention that this seed that was being spoken of is a promised person, not just a promised lineage, uh, although both of those would be true. So the serpent's lineage, those who are like the serpent, will end up being taken out by a singular seed. And that's the argument used in Galatians chapter 3, that God has made a promise to one who is the seed uh, through woman. He will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. There's going to be some wounding. A bruise to the head, a wound to the head is fatal. To the heel is not, though it's still a wound. And right now, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. That's all they know. That's all they've heard. And it's going to take centuries of God working out his plan before we begin to get glimpses of what this actually means. And we only know what it means as we read it here because we have the context of the New Testament. But I want you to understand that Eve knew something was up with this. It seems that Adam and Eve are listening to this conversation in some way. They know some of the things that are included here, at least, whether or not God told them later. And we'll see that in some of their language, especially when we get into chapter 4. Uh, and so it's just kind of interesting to follow that theme through the Bible as they're looking at God's promise to bring about one who will crush the head of the serpent. Let's continue in the reading, though. Verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. This is a terrible translation. <laughs> the New King James, sometimes I'll say, hey, they got that one right. Sometimes they just really didn't. It's not a sinful or wrong translation. It's just not the best. <laughs> Does anybody have a different word there? We're not in a sermon anymore, so if you want to speak out. You have a different word than sorrow in verse 16 there? There's a couple of possibilities there. Contrary. Be contrary. That's going to be in the second half. You'll, your desire be contrary to your husband. That is a better translation also. Pain. In pain, you sh uh, I will greatly multiply your pain and your conception. There's even a better word. Because we're going to see this word again in just a moment, and it's translated properly. I don't know why they do this. Uh, they translate the same word two different ways. 
It may have to do with some other contexts, but they're going to use the same word in a different way, and I want to point it out there. But So think of the word pain. Did you have one, Eva? No? All right. So think of the word pain there. I'll, I'll use that for now. I'll greatly multiply your pain and your conception. I don't know all that that entails. We certainly saw that the blessing was they would be fruitful and multiply. I don't know how that was supposed to work exactly. I mean, I presume it was the same process, but without pain, without the loss of blood, without all these things that we associate with the birth process. And I believe this concept is not only to the moment of birth, but think about all of the things that come along with the woman's fertility. That begins with pain monthly. <laughs> that begins with different hormonal imbalances that happen and maybe along her life create other emotional issues. This is reality. This happens. And then menopause and things that come along with that. There's a whole lot more than just the moment of the conception and, and certainly the moment of birth. That whole process is involved, I believe. It's interesting, you guys said you recently studied Leviticus. Did you notice that after a woman has a child, she offers a sin offering? Is it sinful to have children? <laughs> Not at all. But it does remind of this moment when after sin, God said, this is what's going to happen now. <laughs> this is going to be a whole other process. There's going to be blood involved. There's going to be pain involved. And so, the conception will be greatly multiplied. Now that they're dying... They need to replace themselves more quickly than perhaps they would have had to at first as well. In pain you shall bring forth children, and your desire, my version has this all in italics, shall be for your husband. It's actually it's contrary to your husband in the sense that you seem to want the rule. But let me remind you, you were made as a helper. <laughs> he will rule over you, which is a horrible sounding translation. The idea is the government is in his responsibility, even in the family. It's not that he's to dominate you. That's what people read when they see rule over. That's really, that translation is correct, but it, it still gives into so many connotations. He will have the responsibility of the government of the household. That's what this means. And he's reminding Eve of that because she's the one who ate first and then went and gave some to Adam instead of waiting to see, well, what, do we, what should we do, Adam? <laughs> you know, this is, this is your end of the stick. God is the one who revealed these things to you. My understanding is Adam received the message originally and then would have conveyed that to Eve. Now, we don't see that, but we see that later. <laughs> we see that pattern where the men of the house receive God's word and then take it to the family. So I'm going to presume that backwards. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but... Anyway, Eve is told here, though, that's not going to happen where you're going to be over him. You will submit yourself to his rule. That's what God is saying here. Did you notice that when he began to hand down the sentences, first he didn't ask the serpent any questions. He just said, this is the way it's going to be. But then he went to Eve and gave her a separate sentence, and he gave her one of her own <laughs> There is no universal sentence for sin in the sense that, okay, everybody's going to get uh, the blame for Adam's sin. Did you notice, actually, he's going to be the last one to be spoken to. There is this Calvinistic idea that the original sin was Adam's sin, and everybody's in taking on the blame for that and the consequence for that, but that's not really biblical. Sin follows the one who sins. <laughs> and the consequences follow the one who sins. And we'll notice in a moment that the consequences are tied to the role of the sinner. I want you to see that in this next text. Let's read 17 to 19. We'll revisit this concept. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife 
and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Each individual gets their own sentencing. <laughs> You're not judged as the family. You're not judged based on someone else's sin. And that is a concept that becomes very clear as we go through the rest of the Bible. You're judged for your own sin. But to the, aunt, to the man, he said, his sin was he heeded the voice of his wife. There's more. <laughs> when God had already spoken. It's not that he listened to his wife. He's supposed to. She was given as a helper. When she's helping, he ought to be listening. That is a good thing. It's a blessing. But if she says something different than God said, then don't listen. <laughs> Correct her. You heeded the voice of your wife and ate from the tree, which I already said don't eat from. <laughs> That's the problem. Later on, God will say something similar to Abraham. You heeded the voice of your wife, Sarah, when I told you it's from your loins that the child is coming. It's not that he heeded the voice of his wife. It's that he didn't heed God's voice first. He should be governing. And, men, that's a weakness of ours sometimes, is to allow our women, our wives, to govern in subtle ways by not taking the responsibility. And women, you feel that, and you think something's got to be done, and it's got to be done now, and so you sort of say, let's do this, and the man says, okay. It's his decision. <laughs> and I've seen too often families, there's nothing wrong with talking about it, there's nothing wrong with with encouraging the right kind of decision. But I've seen families divided by the woman who ends up taking on all the role of the responsible, the responsible governor of the house because the man simply will not do it. Somebody's got to. <laughs> the man is the one who's supposed to do that. And men, we need to step up and do what God's given us to do, even if it means we're going to take the brunt of, of the consequences if there's bad choices made. We've got to be willing to make the choices. But he says, you did what I said not to because you listened to your wife and you took her, uh, her command. So because of that, the ground, literally the earth, is cursed for your sake. What is the next phrase in your Bible? What do you have there? In pain you shall eat of it all the days. Does that sound familiar? It ought to, since I pointed it out to you earlier. This is the same phrase that he told Eve. Isn't that interesting? Their labors, that's the word, in labor, we call it labor pains. <laughs> in labor you will bring forth children. And here he says to you, to, to Adam, in labor you will eat of the field. It's exactly the same phrase. But notice, God is respecting their roles here as he hands out the consequences. God made those distinctions, and he says the consequence is going to affect the way you perform your role. Man is going to bring forth fruit from the earth. Woman is going to bring forth fruit from her womb. It's the same work, in essence, and there's labor and pain and toil involved with both. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. By the way, Romans chapter 8 when it talks about God having subjected the world to futility, did you notice Paul knows Genesis really well. Romans 1, he's talking about Genesis 1. Romans 8, he's talking about Genesis 3. The whole world groans together with birth pangs until now. 
these groanings of the world, these groanings of ourselves, and the groaning of the Spirit within us as he helps us pray as we ought is all because the world has been broken and we recognize it. (laughs) We can see it. It's been manifest. (laughs) And so, the ground is cursed, labor pains for both the woman and the man. And part of this curse then, verse 18, thorns and thistles will come up from the ground and you'll eat the herb of the field. That doesn't sound the same as the green herb, does it? (laughs) It is, but there's something different going on here. There's no fruit of the trees, although that's still legitimate. But it's, he's making an, an emphatic point here. This is not the same beautiful place you were before. This world has been affected by your sin. In the sweat of your face shall you eat bread. Verse 19. In Brazil, we go to the bread store almost every day, and the guy who works the bread is kneading the dough, and he works back there. And there's lots of jokes about the bread guy. But this image is supposed to be nasty. (laughs) There's water in the bread. That's how you make it come together. But the water in this image is the sweat from Adam's own brow. (laughs) He's putting himself into his work. You ever heard someone say, I'm working myself to death? That's part of the point. (laughs) We do. It takes its toll on us, and it's meant to. We're not meant to be here forever. And that's part of God's plan. It's why when man has no work to do, when he's idle, bad things begin to happen. His, his, his personality changes. His desire to do things changes. Depression sets in, both for man and for woman. God made us for work. There was work to do in keeping the garden. There's work to do in Christ in maintaining what he's made us to be. But there's work that needs to be done in this world, and we need to just bow ourselves under that, humble ourselves to it. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. I want you to notice now, he says, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. He told Adam back in verse 17 he was going to eat under this curse all the days of his life. It's the same phrase he had used up in 14. When he talked to the serpent and said, all the days of your life. You don't say that to someone who's going to live forever. (laughs) You say that when there's going to be an end of days. He had never used that expression before. But he told them when they should eat of that tree, they were going to die. Now hold on a second. Satan said, you're not going to (laughs) die. And they didn't in the very moment they ate of the tree. Not in the sense, perhaps, that we might be thinking. Not in the sense that Satan, perhaps, was trying to convince them. But they're going to die. And God announces this punishment. If you read Genesis chapter 5, it's a proof that God keeps his promises because the refrain in that chapter is, and he died, and he died, and he died. He may have lived 968 years, and he died. (laughs) And we know that refrain way too well. That's one we see every day. We've all been affected by it. God said they were going to die. In James, we're taught that faith without works is dead, and he makes a comparison. He says, just as the body without the spirit is dead. The idea of death is a separation of sorts. They did die the day they ate of that tree. They were separated from God. They ran from him. They hid from him. They lied to him. They accused him. They were spiritually dead that day. And as a consequence, their physical death was not far behind. Even 900 years later for Adam, still, that's nothing compared to eternity. 
So what do you do with that? This is the sentence that's being handed down. You are going to return to dust. Can you imagine the pain of hearing that? You should. We ought to be concerned with that. There's only one response to that. As I work through these texts with people who aren't Christians and don't know what we know as the one response, they get uncomfortable. They begin to think about this, and they want to know. It's amazing, once we finish the text tomorrow night, they will say, okay, I'm ready. Tell me the rest of the story. What's going to happen? And so we'll go there in the book of Mark. That's where I usually go from here, and I want to show them the one who fixes the problem. It's God, and he comes in the flesh as Jesus. But God has handed down these curses now to the serpent, to the woman, to the man. In the midst of all this darkness, he talks about one who's going to crush the head of the serpent. It's going to happen, and maybe they think right away. We'll see that in chapter 4. I think they're thinking of that. It's going to happen right away. It's going to take a long time for God to work out his plan, and that's a blessing for us because we get to be a part of that plan also. So verses 20 through 24. Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So Adam, even in this new broken world, still is exercising part of his role that God gave him as the one who has dominion. He's the one who's naming, giving purpose to things. He names his wife. He's called her woman already. Now he gives her a more specific name, Eve, because she is the mother of all living. In the Bible story, there is no other woman who comes along and you know, gives birth to half of the human race. It is Eve. The first children somehow are intermarrying. There's no law against that yet. That's a Levitical law. That'll come much further down the road. There's a reason for that later. But right now, you've got the purity of being the first ones made. There's no genetic code disruptions. There's no problems with intermarriage. Not now. That will come later on down the road. But for now, there's a need. So we're not given the details, but somehow there's brothers and sisters who are having children here, and then probably cousins after that are having children, and then finally the family groups are divided in a point where they don't know that the relationship is anymore, though they can still trace it back to Noah. That would be what we'll see later, and perhaps to Adam and Eve. But Adam calls his wife's name Eve. That's a hopeful phrase here. It shows me that they've accepted their punishment from the Lord. <laughs> it's going to cost Eve something. It's going to be painful. There's going to be a sacrifice, and yet she accepts. It's going to cost Adam something. There's going to be a painful sacrifice, as he has to provide not only for himself and his wife, but now for their children that are going to come. Extra labor, extra toil, and yet they accept. And he gives her this glorious name as the mother of all living. She's taking on the role that God has given her, even after the brokenness of coming out of the garden. And God, seeing their shame at their nakedness, God, seeing that they had already made clothing that wasn't adequate, clothes them. Again, sometimes when I'm teaching through this text, I will take time to deal with the issue of modesty. 
When Adam told God, I was afraid because I was naked, had he not already made clothing? Yeah. He'd made aprons out of fig leaves. Have you ever seen anybody who's clothed but recognizes that they're naked? I have. You see it all the time. People covering up, pulling stuff down, <laughs> sitting in a certain way. Not just women, but men as well. I see it a lot. They recognize that they're still naked, and yet they'll go out in public like that, feeling uncomfortable. Why? <laughs> because society has decided that that's not really naked, and you shouldn't feel ashamed of that. When we were about to get married, my wife was looking for a wedding dress. She ended up making one because everywhere she went to find one, she couldn't find anything decent. One of the ladies actually said, you're young and beautiful. You should just show it off. <laughs> really? <laughs> At a day when you're establishing that you've kept yourself pure for this man, you're going to show yourself to everybody else that's there? I don't get that. I don't understand that among Christians who who do that at their weddings. It's shameful. It ought to be shameful. God said, let's cover that up. And so he did. And I love the way he handles it here. He made tunics of skin. And in the Hebrew, I believe that word skin is in the plural. Does your version have tunics of skins? I think the translation ought to have it in plural because the point is an innocent animal died for each of them. Notice he didn't make wool clothing. That was available. He made tunics of skins. There was an innocent animal that had to be sacrificed to cover their shame. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> it didn't to them. But it's certainly a shadowing of what's going to come in the Levitical law and the great grace that we receive in God as the lamb who takes away the sin of the world has covered us and given us robes of white to wear. The book of Revelation picks up on this idea. He covers us. He clothes us so we don't have to be ashamed. He made tunics of skin and clothing. The word tunics here speaks of clothing that goes from the shoulder down to the thighs. We're not sure exactly any more than that, but it's pretty well covering up what they tried to cover with loincloths. What more does a bikini cover than what they would have covered? <laughs> How can we imagine that God would be pleased with wearing clothing that he obviously covered more than that? We need to be careful, and we need to let the Bible define what are our standards of morality and our standards of decency and purity. I don't know how you guys dress. I'm, I'm presuming the best, but I hope you'll be thinking about it and seeing that from the beginning, God had different standards than the world had, even in the broken world, even when there are no children yet. There is a married couple, and God said, you should not be naked all the time. <laughs> Just the two of you. God is establishing a basis for morality and, and uh, covering their bodies. And it's a theme, it's a concept that will follow all through both the Old and New Testament. God wants our bodies covered. So God takes care of that issue. There is one other thing that's interesting to think about here. Here are the guilty who are naked and God clothes them. In John chapter 19, as Jesus goes out to the cross, he is innocent and he is stripped of his clothing. He take on our shame <laughs> and die for us. His shame becomes our covering. God has done that here in an interesting way, but later we see the fulfillment even of this. Whew. The Lord God said, verse 22, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. God knows evil. You ever thought about that? 
But it's not a burden to God because God is good. Evil doesn't tempt God. Our knowing evil is a temptation for us. God wanted to spare that. Now they also know evil. And a man who can live forever by eating from this tree and has the capacity for evil, you think Hitler was bad? <laughs> what if Hitler couldn't die? He took his own life. We couldn't kill him. <laughs> he thought we were going to, but we never managed to do it. He ended up taking his own life. What if you couldn't kill him? Well, that would be Satan. <laughs> that is a creature who cannot die, not by our hand at least, and who is capable of the foulest evil. Men who get away with evil become emboldened to more and more. Satan is emboldened. He's enraged. When we see the end of Revelation 12, once he's been cast out of heaven, he's trying to get as many as he can to go with him. He knows he's been defeated, but he's not going down without a fight and not going down without taking as many as he can, even of the faithful. <laughs> What would a man be like in that situation? God said, that's not going to happen. Cut him off from the tree of life. So the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. He's going to be working himself back to the earth. He sent him out of the Garden of Eden. What a horrible thing to consider. He had access to God. He was in the Holy of Holies. And yet God sends him out. He's still on this holy planet that's been separated from everything else god didn't just cut him off and send him off into space somewhere he's left him on this beautiful blessed earth even though now it's got a cursing over it that's going to make things tougher he drove out the man the man didn't go willingly it wasn't his desire god drove him out and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of eden i want you to think about that for just a second the cherubim are at the east which to me indicates that they were run out through the east. <laughs> Let me try to do this your way. They were run out through the east. So to come back, they would have to go from west to east, or east to west, yeah, to come back in. So God has put the cherubim here so they can't get back in. Later on, when we see the tabernacle, how's it set up? <laughs> and the temple. It's facing, yeah, where the eastern gate is the way in. It's a representation of being cast out of Eden. There are cherubim and a flaming sword which turns every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Keep that image of the tabernacle in your, in your mind. Let me ask you here. This is a question I usually ask about three times before we get here, but that'll have to wait for the slides if you can look at those later. I'll ask sometimes, what would you do in this situation? What would you do? God sees the man all alone. What would you do? Would you make another man? I might, as a guy, I might, I need a partner in this. God made a woman. He knew what he was doing. He did what was good. What would you do if man has had access to the tree of life and you don't want him to have that anymore? Hey, what I would do, cut that sucker down and it's gone. There's no chance. Burn it up. God did not do that. God blocked the way to the tree of life. Did you notice that there's a way to the tree of life? Did you ever think about that before? God just blocked the way with cherubim and a flaming sword. You're not going to get in there until God's ready for you to. But he didn't take the tree away. What would that do for Adam and Eve as they're kicked out of the garden and can see, well, there's the gate. I mean, it's there. What will that do for them? It'll give them hope. <laughs> you cut that thing down. There's no hope. How in the world can we ever live in the presence of God again? But as long as there's still a way, there's a way. You're saying there's a way? Well, not one in a million, but there's a way. 
Yeah, men with hope can do a lot. God held out hope for Adam and Eve. For their descendants, really. But he didn't destroy that tree like you or I might have done. And that tree of life, guess what? <laughs> we see it again. We see hints of it all over the place. You ever read Psalm 1? <laughs> Does it sound like a tree of life to you? It should. There's wisdom in sitting by these rivers of water where your leaf will not fade. If you're doing what God says to do, there's a tree of life in that. And we do see it in other places, but we see it explicitly in Revelation. Where, by the way, there's rivers. Psalm 1 also has the rivers. Does that sound like Eden? It should. <laughs> Does the river Jordan and all the fruitful trees of the, of the valley and then all the way into Israel, does that sound like Eden? It should, and it should sound like a tree of life. All of these are images of what God has held out as hope for his people. But he's placed the cherubim, not the little angels with the bow and arrows. These are frightening creatures with a flaming sword that turns every way. Some different descriptions of that, perhaps in your translation. But you're not getting past the sword, nor past the cherubim. They're blocking it. So, the entry is through the east gate, coming into the temple. As you come in, you come to where the altar is, and the priests are working there. And you, as just the average worshiper, have an opportunity to bring an animal before the priests, and you, in Leviticus 1 and Leviticus 2 and Leviticus 3, are cutting the animal's throat. You're cutting the animal into all its pieces. You're taking out the fat and giving it to the priests and the blood and giving it to the priests so they can put that on the altar. And you're responsible for doing all the labor of the sacrifice. That is a frightening thing to think about. But God then accepts that animal on your behalf. Because as you started that process, you put your hands on its head and said, this animal is representing me now. And God says, okay, if you do it my way, I'll accept the animal instead of you. That innocent animal dying for the guilty person. <laughs> That's the way this worked. And you could come all the way to that altar. As far as you could go, though. <laughs> the priests, some of them, could go inside. That's as far as they could go. One of them, one day a year, <laughs> with sacrifices for himself and for all the people, and then some other sacrifices that would be done as well, could go all the way in, and there was this veil. There's this altar of incense, and he puts the bedellium on it. <laughs> He's got the onyx stones on his shoulder. And he looks at that veil, and there are cherubim. That are, painted, that, are, that are woven onto the tapestry of the veil. He looks up at all the weavings around. Exodus tells us this. And there are cherubim and stars all around on the weavings of the tapestry. That you can see in the flickering light of the candle there. And he's allowed then, as the smoke goes beyond the veil, to sprinkle on the veil <laughs> the blood of the sacrifice and to wipe it on the horns of the altar. And he's considered to be in the presence of God. But he's really not behind that curtain. There's that veil there that separates. He can't go in there. He can go to it. And so he's in as close as he can get to the presence of God. Then Jesus comes. <laughs> Jesus who is that perfect sacrifice. Jesus who goes in beyond the veil because he is God. <laughs> he goes in with his own blood, not the blood of some other sacrifice. And when he dies on the cross, that veil is rent from top to bottom, the cherubim are removed. And Hebrews chapter 8 and 9 says, and we have access into the Holy of Holies. The way to the tree of life has been restored 
in Jesus. <laughs> it's an amazing thing to think about. And that's what the book of Revelation is really showing, that those who are with the Lamb walk right into the throne room. And there they behold this great scene. And they bow down with all of the angels and the elders and all of those living creatures that are spiritual beings. And they cry out, holy, holy, holy. And they say, worthy is he who is on the throne and the lamb to receive honor and glory and blessing and power sevenfold. As they spell out the glory and the grace that God has extended to those who are worshiping. When Jesus died on the cross he was naked but he was wearing something remember what was on his head a crown he's a king but a crown of thorns have we seen thorns in this context also are they not the consummate symbol for uh, symbol for sin absolutely they are the result of sin he was the king of sin you can imagine the Jews just thinking, oh, what a great thing. Who put those thorns on his head? Matthew will tell us who does that. Let me find the verse real quick. Go ahead and be opening in Matthew 26 or 27. I want you to see this because I think it's powerful. Uh, Matthew chapter 27 starting at verse 27. The soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him. We're talking about a whole bunch of Gentiles, a bunch of Romans here. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. When they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand and bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. If the Jews had put this crown of thorn on his head, it would have been really impressive how God brought this whole story to an end. And the Jews understanding, here's our sinful man who claims to be God. But the Jews didn't do that. The Romans, who have no idea about this symbol, they have no concept, put a crown of thorns on Jesus' head. That's not the Jews writing a story about a man they didn't like. That's God telling history, and that's his fingerprint that he wrote the Bible and not men. It's an amazing detail for the Romans to get right, <laughs> and yet they did. And it's not the only time we see that. Think of all the times you hear thorns being talked about in the Bible. You can think of one right now, I guarantee you, a thorn in the flesh. Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapters 11 and 12, and he says it's a messenger of Satan, <laughs> that God allowed me to keep, to buffet me and keep me humble. The thorns are vestiges of sin. God told the Israelites when they went into the promised land and did not eradicate the Canaanites as they were supposed to, that I'm going to allow them to be, this is so painful to think about, thorns in your eyes. <laughs> oh, because they didn't do what they were supposed to do. They sinned. They didn't obey God. <laughs> This is an image that when you go through Isaiah and when you go through uh, Hosea and when you go through some of these Old Testament prophets and they start to say, well, because of this, your cities are going to be overrun by ostriches, some of the translations, by owls, by jackals. Thorns and thistles will grow up in your palaces. Read through the prophets sometime and see how often thorns come up. You think God's telling them why he's kicking them out? <laughs> They're sinful. 
And the Jews knew that. They understood this symbol more than anybody else. But the Romans did not and placed a crown of thorns on Jesus' head. It is so powerful to me. As an atheist coming to the Bible, I kept thinking over and over, men wrote this. And then I would see the accounts of the crucifixion, where they just detail over and over all the nerve endings and the nails going in. No, they don't. Email threads do that. All of the writers of the Bible said, and they crucified him. That's it. That's all they said. How could these men who loved Jesus, who cried with him, who leaned on his breast at the supper, how could they say, and they let him out and crucified him? Or they scourged him. That's straightforward and simple. If I'm telling about someone I love who's crucified or scourged, I'm putting lots of details. I want people to know what they suffered. That was God's plan from the beginning. He just And it happened just like I said it would. That's all it was. God's fingerprint <laughs> right there. That was so convincing to me. Emotional men. <laughs> people who had a story to tell and wanted to make sure they got it are not who wrote the Bible. God wrote the Bible using them and just put it in his words and said, here's what I said was going to happen. And it happened. <laughs> no surprises. God's not surprised when things happen the way that he planned them to happen, even when terrible things, like the destruction of the temple that Jesus warned them about. There was no surprise. He gave them all the clues they needed, and the Christians got out of Dodge. God held out hope for his people. Through Adam and Eve, through their descendants, as they said, yes, Lord, we were wrong. We'll accept your plan. Eve will be the mother of all living. We'll continue, even though it's going to be hard. I think there's hope in that. And God left the tree of life available, to which we have access in the Christ. Read through Hebrews after studying these texts here, especially after Leviticus, which you guys recently studied. Read through Hebrews and see all the connections there, and you will see that the Jewish culture and the Jewish mindset that the Hebrew writer was, was incorporating there will point to all of these promises that are available, that are visible, but we usually just read right over them. <laughs> the way to the tree of life has been opened. Those cherubim have been separated. They're not there anymore. You can go in. We can freely go in if we're with Christ. That's a blessing that we can all be, uh, be courageous about. We should boldly go before his throne of grace, we're told in Hebrews. And that's what we ought to be doing. Thank you so much for letting me share these things with you. Like I said, the slides have got so much more information on them. I do a whole series on there, a whole setup about this tabernacle and all the different texts that point to the workings of the tabernacle being just like the Garden of Eden. I mean, literally stars and cherubs all over the, the tapestries. It's amazing. And the two cherubs with their wings touching over the ark, all of that has been removed so that we can go right into his presence. I want to encourage you to be reading uh, more purposefully even some of these texts that seem so basic. We relegate a lot of these to our children's classes. These are written for adults. <laughs> this was a generation of adults who needed to know who they were. We need to know who we are. We need to know who God is first. We need to know why we need him so badly. And I think these texts teach us. Tomorrow's lesson is a little different. It's interesting we know the story of Cain and Abel, but that's a story of God's grace. We've seen what happens when God loves people and creates them for a loving purpose and they rebel. And we might expect God from here on out is just going to be cold toward them. He is so graceful, so gracious. He overwhelms them with grace. And that's where the gospel comes in. Grace has been extended in such a way that we're fools if we reject it. Our foolish hearts are darkened and we are simply without excuse. God wants us to come into the Holy of Holies 
Won't you come in with me? Won't you take me with you? Won't we go together with Jesus? Let's stand and sing this song to encourage each other.